Chapter thirty six of Barchester Towers by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter thirty six Allathorne Sports, Act One. The trouble in civilized life of entertaining company, as it is called too generally without much regard to strict veracity, is so great that it cannot but be a matter of wonder that people are so fond of attempting it. It is difficult to ascertain what is the quid pro quo. If they who give such laborious parties, and who endure such toil and turmoil in the vain hope of giving them successfully, really enjoyed the parties given by others, the matter could be understood. A sense of justice would induce men and women to undergo, in behalf of others, those miseries which others had undergone in their behalf. But they all profess that going out is as great a bore as receiving, and to look at them when they are out, one cannot but believe them. Entertain! Who shall have sufficient self-assurance? Who shall feel sufficient confidence in his own powers to dare to boast that he can entertain his company? A clown can sometimes do so, and sometimes a dancer in short petticoats and stuffed pink legs, occasionally perhaps a singer. But beyond these, success in this art of entertaining is not often achieved. Young men and girls linking themselves kind with kind, pairing like birds in spring because nature wills it, they, after a simple fashion, do entertain each other few others even try. Ladies, when they open their houses, modestly confessing, it may be presumed, their own incapacity, mainly trust to wax candles and upholstery. Gentlemen seem to rely on their white waistcoats. To these are added, for the delight of the more sensual, champagne, and such good things of the table as fashion allows to be still considered as comestible. Even in this respect, the world is deteriorating. All the good soups are now tabooed, and at the houses of one's accustomed friends, small barristers, doctors, government clerks, and such like, for we cannot all of us always live as grandees, surrounded by an elysium of livery servants, one gets a cold potato handed to one as a sort of finale to one slice of mutton, Alas for those happy days when one could say to one's neighbour, Jones, shall I give you some mashed turnip? May I trouble you for a little cabbage? And then the pleasure of drinking wine with Mrs. Jones and Miss Smith, with all the Joneses and all the Smiths. These latter-day habits are certainly more economical. Miss Thorne, however, boldly attempted to leave the modern beaten track, and made a positive effort to entertain her guests. Alas, she did so with but moderate success. They had all their own way of going, and would not go her way. She piped to them, but they would not dance. She offered to them good, honest household cake, made of currants and flour and eggs and sweetmeat but they would feed themselves on trashy wafers from the shop of the Barchester pastry-cook, 
on chalk and gum and adulterated sugar. Poor Miss Thorne! Yours is not the first honest soul that has vainly striven to recall the glories of happy days gone by. If fashion suggests to a Lady de Courcy that when invited to a déjeuner at twelve she ought to come at three, no eloquence of thine will teach her the advantage of a nearer approach to punctuality. She had fondly thought that when she called on her friends to come at twelve, and specially begged them to believe that she meant it, she would be able to see them comfortably seated in their tents at two. Vain woman, or rather ignorant woman, ignorant of the advances of that civilization which the world had witnessed while she was growing old. At twelve she found herself alone, dressed in all the glory of the newest of her many suits of raiment, with strong shoes, however, and a serviceable bonnet on her head, and a warm, rich shawl on her shoulders. Thus clad, she peered out into the tent, went to the ha-ha, and satisfied herself that at any rate the youngsters were amusing themselves, spoke a word to Mrs. Greenacre over the ditch, and took one look at the quintain. Three or four young farmers were turning the machine round and round, and poking at the bag of flour in a manner not at all intended by the inventor of the game, but no mounted sportsmen were there, Miss Thorne looked at her watch. It was only fifteen minutes past twelve, and it was understood that Harry Greenacre was not to begin till the half-hour. Miss Thorne returned to her drawing-room rather quicker than was her wont, fearing that the Countess might come and find none to welcome her. She need not have hurried, for no one was there. At half-past twelve she peeped into the kitchen. At a quarter to one she was joined by her brother, and just then the first fashionable arrival took place. Mrs. Clantantrum was announced. No announcement was necessary, indeed, for the good lady's voice was heard as she walked across the courtyard to the house scolding the unfortunate postilion who had driven her from barchester at the moment miss thorne could not but be thankful that the other guests were more fashionable and were thus spared the fury of mrs clantantrum's indignation oh miss thorne look here said she as soon as she found herself in the drawing-room do look at my rook-law it's clean spoilt and for ever I wouldn't but wear it because I knew you wished us all to be grand to-day, and yet I had my misgivings. Oh, dear, oh, dear, it was five-and-twenty shillings a yard. The Barchester post-horses had misbehaved in some unfortunate manner, just as Mrs. Clantantrum was getting out of the chaise, and had nearly thrown her under the wheel. Mrs. Clantantrum belonged to other days, and therefore though she had but little else to recommend her miss thorne was to a certain extent fond of her she sent the rock-law away to be cleaned and lent her one of her best shawls out of her own wardrobe the next comer was mr arabin who was immediately informed of mrs clantantrum's misfortune and of her determination to pay neither master nor postboy although as she remarked she intended to get her lift home before she made known her mind upon that matter. 
then a good deal of rustling was heard in the sort of lobby that was used for the ladies outside cloaks and the door having been thrown wide open the servant announced not in the most confident of voices mrs lookaloft and the miss lookalofts and mr augustus lookaloft poor man we mean the footman he knew none better that mrs lookaloft had no business there that she was not wanted there and would not be welcome but he had not the courage to tell a stout lady with a low dress short sleeves and satin at eight shillings a yard that she had come to the wrong tent he had not dared to hint to young ladies with white dancing-shoes and long gloves that there was a place ready for them in the paddock and thus mrs lookaloft carried her point broke through the guards and made her way into the citadel that she would have to pass an uncomfortable time there she had surmised before but nothing now could rob her of the power of boasting that she had consorted on the lawn with the squire and miss thorne with a countess a bishop and the county grandees while mrs greenacre and such like were walking about with the ploughboys in the park it was a great point gained by mrs lookaloft and it might be fairly expected that from this time forward the tradesmen of barchester would with undoubting pens address her husband as t lookaloft esq mrs lookaloft's pluck carried her through everything and she walked triumphant into the ullathorne drawing-room but her children did feel a little abashed at the sort of reception they met with it was not in miss thorne's heart to insult her own guests but neither was it in her disposition to overlook such effrontery oh mrs lookaloft is this you said she and your daughters and son well we're very glad to see you but i'm sorry you've come in such low dresses as we are all going out of doors could we lend you anything oh dear no thank ye miss thorne said the mother the girls and myself are quite used to low dresses when we're out are you indeed said miss thorne shuddering but the shudder was lost on mrs lookaloft and where's lookaloft said the master of the house coming up to welcome his tenant's wife let the faults of the family be what they would he could not but remember that their rent was well paid he was therefore not willing to give them a cold shoulder such a headache mr thorne said mrs lookaloft in fact he couldn't stir or you may be certain on such a day he would not have absented himself dear me said miss thorne if he is so ill i'm sure you'd wish to be with him not at all said mrs lookaloft not at all miss thorne it is only bilious you know and when he's that way he can't bear nobody nigh him the fact however was that mr lookaloft having either more sense or less courage than his wife had not chosen to intrude on miss thorne's drawing-room and as he could not very well have gone among the plebeians while his wife was with the patricians he thought it most expedient to remain at rosebank mrs lookaloft soon found herself on a sofa 
and the Miss Lookalofts on two chairs, while Mr. Augustus stood near the door, and here they remained till in due time they were seated, all four together, at the bottom of the dining-room table. Then the Grantleys came, the Archdeacon and Mrs. Grantley and the two girls, and Dr. Gwynne and Mr. Harding. As ill luck would have it, they were closely followed by Dr. Stanhope's carriage. As Eleanor looked out of the carriage window, she saw her brother-in-law helping the ladies out, and threw herself back into her seat, dreading to be discovered. She had had an odious journey. Mr. Slope's civility had been more than ordinarily greasy, and now, though he had not in fact said anything which she could notice, she had for the first time entertained a suspicion that he was intending to make love to her. Was it after all true that she had been conducting herself in a way that justified the world in thinking that she liked the man? After all, could it be possible that the archdeacon and Mr. Arabin were right, and that she was wrong? Charlotte Stanhope had also been watching Mr. Slope, and had come to the conclusion that it behoved her brother to lose no further time if he meant to gain the widow. She almost regretted that it had not been contrived that Bertie should be at Ullathorne before them. Dr. Grantly did not see his sister-in-law in company with Mr. Slope, but Mr. Arabin did. Mr. Arabin came out with Mr. Thorne to the front door to welcome Mrs. Grantly, and he remained in the courtyard till all their party had passed on. Eleanor hung back in the carriage as long as she well could, but she was nearest to the door, and when Mr. Slope, having alighted, offered her his hand, she had no alternative but to take it. Mr. Arabin, standing at the open door while Mrs. Grantly was shaking hands with someone within, saw a clergyman alight from the carriage, whom he at once knew to be Mr. Slope, and then he saw this clergyman hand out Mrs. Bold. Having seen so much, Mr. Arabin, rather sick at heart, followed Mrs. Grantly into the house. Eleanor was, however, spared any further immediate degradation for Dr. Stanhope gave her his arm across the courtyard, and Mr. Slope was fain to throw away his attention upon Charlotte. They had hardly passed into the house, and from the house to the lawn, when, with a loud rattle and such noise as great men and great women are entitled to make in their passage through the world, the Proudies drove up. It was soon apparent that no everyday comer was at the door, one servant whispered to another that it was the bishop, and the word soon ran through all the hangers-on and strange grooms and coachmen about the place. There was quite a little cortege to see the bishop and his lady walk across the courtyard. And the good man was pleased to see that the church was held in such respect in the parish of St. Ewold's and now the guests came fast and thick, and the lawn began to be crowded, and the room to be full. Voices buzzed, silk rustled against silk, and muslin crumpled against muslin. 
Miss Thorne became more happy than she had been, and again bethought her of her sports. There were targets and bows and arrows prepared at the further end of the lawn. Here the gardens of the place encroached with a somewhat wide sweep upon the paddock, and gave ample room for the doings of the toxophilites. Miss Thorne got together such daughters of Diana as could bend a bow, and marshalled them to the targets. There were the Grantly girls, and the Proudy girls, and the Chadwick girls, and the two daughters of the Burley Chancellor, and Miss Knoll. And with them went Frederick, and Augustus Chadwick, and young Knoll of Knoll Park, and Frank Foster of the Elms, and Mr. Vellum Deeds, the dashing attorney of the High Street, and the Rev. Mr. Green, and the Rev. Mr. Brown, and the Rev. Mr. White, all of whom, as in duty bound, attended the steps of the three Miss Proudies. "'Did you ever ride at the Quintain, Mr. Foster?' said Miss Thorne, as she walked with her party across the lawn. "'The Quintain,' said young Foster, who considered himself a dab at horsemanship. "'Is it a sort of gate, Miss Thorne?' Miss Thorne had to explain the noble game she spoke of, and Frank Foster had to own that he never had ridden at the Quintain. "'Would you like to come and see?' said Miss Thorne. "'There'll be plenty here, you know, without you, if you like it.' "'Well, I don't mind,' said Frank. "'I suppose the ladies can come too.' "'Oh, yes,' said Miss Thorne. "'Those who like it. "'I have no doubt they'll go to see your prowess, if you'll ride, Mr. Foster.' Mr. Foster looked down at a most unexceptionable pair of pantaloons, which had arrived from London only the day before. They were the very things, at least he thought so, for a picnic or fetch en petre, but he was not prepared to ride in them, nor was he more encouraged than had been Mr. Thorne by the idea of being attacked from behind by the bag of flour, which Miss Thorne had graphically described to him. "'Well, I don't know about riding, Miss Thorne,' said he. "'I fear I'm not quite prepared.' Miss Thorne sighed, but said nothing further. She left the toxophilites to their bows and arrows, and returned towards the house. But as she passed by the entrance to the small park, she thought that she might at any rate encourage the yeoman by her presence.' as she could not induce her more fashionable guests to mix with them in their manly amusements. Accordingly, she once more betook herself to the Quintain post. Here, to her great delight, she found Harry Greenacre ready-mounted, with his pole in his hand, and a lot of comrades standing round him, encouraging him to the assault. She stood at a little distance, and nodded to him in token of her good pleasure. "'Shall I begin, ma'am?' said Harry, fingering his long staff in a rather awkward way, while his horse moved uneasily beneath him, not accustomed to a rider armed with such a weapon. "'Yes, yes,' said Miss Thorne, standing triumphant as the Queen of Beauty, on an inverted tub which some chance had brought thither from the farmyard. "'Here goes, Anne,' said Harry, as he wheeled his horse round to get the necessary momentum of a sharp gallop. The quintain post stood right before him, and the square board at which he was to tilt was fairly in his way. If he hit that duly in the middle, and maintained his pace as he did so, it was calculated that he would be carried out of reach of the flower-bag, 
which, suspended at the other end of the crossbar on the post, would swing round when the board was struck. It was also calculated that if the rider did not maintain his pace, he would get a blow from the flour-bag just at the back of his head, and bear about him the signs of his awkwardness to the great amusement of the lookers-on. Harry Greenacre did not object to being powdered with flour in the service of his mistress, and therefore gallantly touched his steed with his spur, having laid his lance in rest to the best of his ability. But his ability in this respect was not great, and his appurtenances probably not very good. Consequently, he struck his horse with his pole unintentionally on the side of the head as he started. The animal swerved and shied, and galloped off wide of the quintain. Harry, well accustomed to manage a horse, but not to do so with a twelve-foot rod on his arm, lowered his right hand to the bridle, and thus the end of the lance came to the ground and got between the legs of the steed. Down came rider and steed and staff. Young Greenacre was thrown some six feet over the horse's head, and poor Miss Thorne almost fell off her tub in a swoon. "'Oh, gracious, he's killed!' shrieked a woman who was near him when he fell. "'The Lord be good to him, his poor mother, his poor mother,' said another. "'Well, drat them dangerous plays all the world over,' said an old crone. "'He has broke his neck, sure enough, if ever man did,' said a fourth. "'Poor Miss Thorne!' She heard all this, and yet did not quite swoon. She made her way through the crowd as best she could, sick herself almost to death. Oh, his mother, his poor mother, how could she ever forgive herself? The agony of that moment was terrific. She could hardly get to the place where the poor lad was lying, as three or four men in front were about the horse, which had risen with some difficulty but at last she found herself close to the young farmer. "'Has he marked himself? For heaven's sake, tell me that! Has he marked his knees?' said Harry, slowly rising and rubbing his left shoulder with his right hand, and thinking only of his horse's legs. Miss Thorne soon found that he had not broken his neck, nor any of his bones, nor been injured in any essential way but from that time forth she never instigated any one to ride at a quintain. Eleanor left Dr. Stanhope as soon as she could do so civilly, and went in quest of her father, whom she found on the lawn, in company with Mr. Arabin. She was not sorry to find them together. She was anxious to disabuse, at any rate, her father's mind, as to this report which had got abroad respecting her, and would have been well pleased to have been able to do the same with regard to Mr. Arabin. She put her own through her father's arm, coming up behind his back, and then tendered her hand also to the vicar of St. Ewold's. "'And how did you come?' said Mr. Harding, when the first greeting was over. "'The Stanhopes brought me,' said she. "'Their carriage was obliged to come twice, and has now gone back for the Signora.' As she spoke, she caught Mr. Arabin's eye, and saw that he was looking pointedly at her, with a severe expression. She understood at once the accusation contained in his glance. It said, as plainly as an eye could speak, Yes, you came with the Stanhopes, 
but you did so in order that you might be in company with Mr. Slope. Our party, said she, still addressing her father, consisted of the doctor and Charlotte Stanhope, myself, and Mr. Slope. As she mentioned the last name, she felt her father's arm quiver slightly beneath her touch. At the same moment, Mr. Arabin turned away from them, and joining his hands behind his back, strolled slowly away by one of the paths. Papa, said she, it was impossible to help coming in the same carriage with Mr. Slope. It was quite impossible. I had promised to come with them before I dreamt of his coming, and afterwards I could not get out of it without explaining and giving rise to talk. You weren't at home, you know. I couldn't possibly help it. She said all this so quickly that by the time her apology was spoken she was quite out of breath. "'I don't know why you should have wished to help it, my dear,' said her father. "'Yes, papa, you do. You must know. You do know all the things they said at Plumstead. I am sure you do. You know all the archdeacon said, how unjust he was. And Mr. Arabin, too, he's a horrid man, a horrid, odious man, but who is an odious man, my dear? Mr. Arabin? No, but Mr. Slope. You know I mean Mr. Slope. He's the most odious man I ever met in my life, and it was most unfortunate my having to come here in the same carriage with him. But how could I help it? A great weight began to move itself off Mr. Harding's mind. So, after all the archdeacon with all his wisdom and mrs grantly with all her tact and mr arabin with all his talent were in the wrong his own child his eleanor the daughter of whom he was so proud was not to become the wife of a mr slope he had been about to give his sanction to the marriage, so certified had he been of the fact, and now he learnt that this imputed lover of Eleanor's was at any rate as much disliked by her as by any one of the family. Mr. Harding, however, was by no means sufficiently a man of the world to conceal the blunder he had made. He could not pretend that he had entertained no suspicion, he could not make believe that he had never joined the archdeacon in his surmises. He was greatly surprised and gratified beyond measure, and he could not help showing that such was the case. "'My darling girl,' said he, "'I am so delighted, so overjoyed. My own child, you have taken such a weight off my mind. But surely, papa—' you didn't think i didn't know what to think my dear the archdeacon told me that the archdeacon said eleanor her face lighting up with passion a man like the archdeacon might one would think be better employed than introducing his sister-in-law and creating bitterness between a father and his daughter he didn't mean to do that eleanor what did he mean then why did he interfere with me and fill your mind with such falsehood? Never mind it now, my child. Never mind it now. We shall all know you better now. Oh, papa, that you should have thought it, that you should have suspected me. I don't know what you mean by suspicion, Eleanor. 
there would be nothing disgraceful you know nothing wrong in such a marriage nothing that could have justified my interfering as your father and mr harding would have proceeded in his own defence to make out that mr slope after all was a very good sort of man and a very fitting second husband for a young widow had he not been interrupted by eleanor's greater energy it would be disgraceful said she it would be wrong it would be abominable could i do such a horrid thing i should expect no one to speak to me Ooh! and she shuddered as she thought of the matrimonial torch which her friends had been so ready to light on her behalf i don't wonder at dr grantly i don't wonder at susan but oh papa i do wonder at you how could you how could you believe it poor eleanor as she thought of her father's defalcation could resist her tears no longer and was forced to cover her face with her handkerchief the place was not very opportune for her grief they were walking through the shrubberies and there were many people near them poor mr harding stammered out his excuse as best he could and eleanor with an effort controlled her tears and returned her handkerchief to her pocket she did not find it difficult to forgive her father nor could she altogether refuse to join him in the returning gaiety of spirit to which her present avowal gave rise it was such a load off his heart to think that he should not be called on to welcome mr slope as his son-in-law it was such a relief to him to find that his daughter's feelings and his own were now as they ever had been in unison he had been so unhappy for the last six weeks about this wretched mr slope he was so indifferent as to the loss of the hospital so thankful for the recovery of his daughter that strong as was the ground for eleanor's anger she could not find it in her heart to be long angry with him dear papa she said hanging closely to his arm never suspect me again promise me that you never will whatever i do you may be sure i shall tell you first you may be sure i shall consult you and mr harding did promise and owned his sin and promised again and so while he promised amendment and she uttered forgiveness they returned together to the drawing-room windows and what had eleanor meant when she declared that whatever she did she would tell her father first what was she thinking of doing so ended the first act of the melodrama which eleanor was called on to perform this day at ullathorne end of chapter thirty six recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom